The trouble began when Mr. Davis's crew discovered one of the strangest, most mysterious tombs ever found in the valley. It was a hodgepodge of miscellaneous funerary equipment, much of it in poor condition, including a mummy and coffin and pieces of a magnificent golden shrine. And if it had been properly investigated, new light would have been shed on a particularly intriguing era of Egyptian history. In vain did we offer Mr. Davis the services of our staff. Abdullah, who was still with us, was the most experienced rice in Egypt. Our son Ramses was a skilled linguist and excavator, and his friend David an equally skilled copyist, not to mention our foster daughter Nefret, to whose excavation experience was added medical training and a thorough acquaintance with mummies. Only an egotistical idiot would have refused. Davis did refuse. He regarded excavation as entertainment, not as a tool in scholarly research, and he was jealous of a better man. He wanted no one to interfere with his toy. Watching Davis rip the tomb apart, I quote Emerson, was trying enough. The denouement came on the day when the mummy fell apart due to careless handling. It might not have survived anyhow, but Emerson was in no state of mind to admit that. Emerson expressed his sentiments in the ringing tones and rich vocabulary that have earned him his sobriquet of Abu Shitaim, father of curses. He included in them Monsieur Maspero, the distinguished head of the Service des Antiquités. Maspero really had no choice but to accede to Davis's infuriated demand that we be barred from the valley altogether. There are many other sites in Luxor. Maspero offered several of them to Emerson. By that time, Emerson was in such a state of fury that he rejected them all, and when we sailed from Port Said, we had no idea where we would be working the following season. It was good to be back at our English home in Kent, and I make it a point to look on the bright side. But as spring turned to summer and summer wore on, my attempts to do so failed miserably. It rained incessantly. The roses developed mildew. Rose, our admirable housekeeper, caught a nasty cold, which refused to yield to treatment. And Gargery, our butler, drove me wild with his incessant prying and his pointed hints that he be allowed to come to Egypt with us in the autumn. Emerson, sulking in his study like a gargoyle, refused to discuss our future plans. He knew he had been in the wrong, but would not admit it. And his attempts to get back in my good graces had, I confess, not been well received. By the end of July. All our tempers had become strained. The drawing room was a chill, shadowy cavern, and my thoughts were as cold and dark with the memory of that awful day, when I held Abdullah clasped in my arms, and watched in helpless horror as scarlet drenched the white of his robes. He had taken in his own body the bullets meant for me. So sit, am I dying? He gasped. Yes, I said. He launched into a familiar complaint. Emerson, look after her. She is not careful. She takes foolish chances.
Emerson's face was almost as white as that of his dying friend. But he managed to choke out a promise. I hadn't realized how much I cared for Abdullah until I was about to lose him. I hadn't realized the depth of his affection for me until I heard his final whispered words. Words I had never shared with a living soul. The bitter knowledge that I would never hear that deep voice or see that stern bearded face again was like a void in my heart. The door opened and my foster daughter's voice remarked, Goodness, but it's as gloomy as a cell in here. Why are you sitting in the dark, Aunt Amelia? Gargery neglected to switch on the lights, I replied, sniffing. Curse it, I believe I'm catching Rose's cold. Ramses, will you oblige? My son pressed the switches and the light illumined the three forms standing in the doorway. Ramses, David and Nefret. The children were usually together. They were